The issues that matter most, right here. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. The Justice Department announced it will launch a new unit focused on the rising threat of domestic terrorism. The number of FBI investigations over the past two years since March 2020 has more than doubled. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson said a team of attorneys will focus on the threats and make sure cases are coordinated at the federal level and across the country. Thomas Warwick, former DHS Deputy Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism Policy, says the new unit signals to extremists that these cases will be a priority. The U.S. Capitol Police Department counted around 9,600 threats last year alone. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Good afternoon. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew Mariani today, taking your calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. We've got a packed show today, and joining me in the first slot is my friend Andy McCarthy from National Review, nationalreview.com. He's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, a Fox News contributor, former chief assistant, United States attorney in the Southern District of New York. He led the terrorism prosecution against the blind sheikh. He's also the author of Ball of Confusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. And he's on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy. Andy, welcome back. Ed, great to be with you. It's always great to talk with you. You know, normally we're we're talking about some pretty weighty issues. I don't know if you can get weightier than the FBI and some of the performance issues that we've seen erupt here at the at the FBI. You've got two great columns up over at National Review, two different two completely different aspects of the FBI's performance. And um, I mean, this is this is these are performance issues. I think more than they're anything else, but uh, they're still a bit troubling. Yeah, and they cover both coasts, Ed. so it's right. Like, yes, um, yeah. No matter where you turn, there's uh, there's problems. And I and look, I I should point out here, a lot of the times that we talk about um, government incompetence, and specifically if we talk about that on on the FBI's account, uh, we're talking about you know seemingly outrageous actions that they've taken or things that they've missed that you can't understand why they missed. This is right. not that, at least at, at this stage. In one instance, we have, I think, on the East Coast side, in connection with the synagogue uh, hostage-taking that we had over the weekend, we have at least a messaging problem, and then we have a, another set of issues that I'm, I will have a column out later today uh, that goes into more detail about, but it may not be right to leave that at the FBI's door. I think this may be a broader, not only American government, but British government yes. problem in terms of how did this guy manage to get into the United States when it looks like there's about you know 15 different places they should have been able to keep him out. And then on the West Coast, in connection with the, uh, with the train heists that are going on at the Union Pacific Railroad routes, particularly near uh, Los Angeles, um, my question there is, what is the government doing? Because it's obvious we know the progressive prosecutors out there, particularly in Los Angeles, to the great frustration of uh, both the private rail lines and the police, are doing nothing about it. But it seems to me the kind of paradigm issue that federal law enforcement exists for, the regulation of uh, interstate and international commerce, and they seem to be AWOL unless there's something going on that we can't see. 
I agree. Uh, let's start with the easier one first, which I think is the which I think is the um, the terrorist uh, incident in Colleyville, Texas. And I mean, the FBI and local uh, you know local law enforcement responded quickly. Um, the situation got resolved. I think the hostages were, were primi- primarily responsible for getting that resolved as quickly as as it was. But you know, the other. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there was only so much that you can do while you've got a hostage situation going on there. You want to protect the hostages. I, I think really the biggest issue there was just the messaging, which was that they didn't want to, I guess they did. They were, wanted to be overly sensitive about the idea that uh, that this was a, uh, a radical Islamist um, terror incident. They didn't want to necessarily uh, get into that. And so they they posited the absurd statement that, this person had taken hostages at a synagogue to release a, a a a woman who was prosecuted for radical Islamist terrorism against United States targets, and say and 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 said, well, there's no evidence that the, that Jews were specifically targeted in this, which you know, everybody's going to laugh at that because it's an absurd statement to make under the circumstances. Yeah, a, a woman who, when she was convicted at trial wanted her jury vetted to see if they had Jewish blood. So, you know. Right. Um, this is Afia Siddiqui, by the way. For, for those of you who aren't familiar with that case, it's Afia Siddiqui, who was uh, known as Lady Al-Qaeda. This was several years right. ago. She, she got an 86-year sentence, and that's what he, this is who he's trying to spring. A- Andy, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and virulent anti-Semitism is baked in the cake in, in Sharia supremacist ideology, which I think is a more accurate description of what the ideology is than um than radical islam or political islam or whatever kind of islam we're calling it today but um i i think that there's three problems here and the the first one which is the messaging is the one that seems most offensive it certainly felt like a smack in the face when you heard it but i think is the most uh defensible even though i agree and i've said you know, only for 30 years now, that they're overly indulgent of the sensibility of anti-American Islamists. And they're always afraid of saying something that will be or could be taken to mean that all Muslims, as opposed to the subset of uh, political Sharia supremacists, are anti-Semites, which is, you know, and just because it seems like you have to say this every time you discuss this topic, I've been pretty clear over the years that had it not been for the heroic, sometimes unbelievably heroic efforts uh, by Muslims in the United States, we could not have broken up terror cells and and prosecuted the cases against uh, Islamic uh, terrorists that we did in the 90s and going forward. So, you know, we're not talking about every Muslim here. We're talking about, but we're talking about a, a problematic subset of Muslims. And they need to be less indulgent, I think, of the feelings of, of people who are apologists for those people. I think the agent, whose name is DeSarno, he's the special agent in charge of the, the, the Dallas field office, was trying to convey that the main objective of this terrorist was to get Siddiqui freed. He was trying to extort our government by taking hostages into freeing Siddiqui. And what he was trying to convey in a kind of a tenured way was that the FBI is not aware of any ongoing broad plot to attack American synagogues. Yes. So he was trying to he was trying to put people's 
anxieties at ease. Unfortunately, when the FBI gets that wrong in the way they express it, they actually get people more upset rather than less upset because it makes it seem like they're not taking the threat seriously enough. So I, I think that was unfortunate messaging, but I kind of I kind of think the guy's heart was in the right place. He's just like, you know, he's a bureau guy. He wants to get up the ladder and he talks right. the way they talk. Um, second most serious problem is what happened in the, mo- in the uh, synagogue. Um, we now know, as you pointed out, that the, the hostages appear to have gotten out before the shooting started. So the FBI got in at a certain point. It's not clear, as the reporting today uh, is, the FBI is mum on this, but the reporting is a little bit more uh, uh, illuminating today about the fact that we don't know how Akram died, the jihadist. We don't know if he killed himself. We don't know if the HRT team, the the hostage rescue team at the Bureau did it under what circumstances since the hostages were already out. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. And I don't mind that there's unanswered questions after a chaotic, lethal incident like this. Um, Especially in the first couple of days. Yeah, no, I've been an investigator on this kind of stuff. And you know, people see it from different perspectives. You have to talk to everybody before you have a real understanding of what happened. My beef with this is if the FBI is going to go out and take a victory lap, then don't spin us with just the facts that make them, that cast them in a good light and then leave stuff out and then conceal it. You know, either don't say anything or tell us what you can tell us, but don't, you know, that's, I think, what, what aggravates people, that they kind of came out and all indications were that, you know, the HRT guys went in and, you know, they got the hostages freed. And that's not really exactly how it happened. Uh, but we, we need to know how it happened. So that's problem number two. The worst problem and the thing I think is most alarming and should be is that it seems like there was at least three bases to keep this terrorist out of the country. Right. He had a criminal record in England. He had mental illness issues. And most importantly, he was on a terrorist watch list in Great Britain because he had run off at the mouth after the 9-11 attacks about wishing he had been, you know, one of the guys who um, flew the planes into the targets. He was so virulent about this that a court in his hometown formally banned him from the courthouse, which is something that was obviously uh, known to the British intelligence officials. And the BBC is now confirming that, yes, he was under he was on the uh, uh, person of interest watch list that they have uh, in 2020. And for some reason, he got moved from that list to the downgraded list. And it looks like when it's a person of of real interest to the British security services, they share that list with the U.S. counterparts. But maybe they don't with respect to the people they've downgraded. And no one is saying that they don't have a hard job. There's apparently 43,000 people who are on these two lists in Great Britain. It's very hard to maintain surveillance on the people who are truly of interest. And you can understand why there's pressure to get people off the list, because if you're using your finite resources on somebody who doesn't need to be watched, you're missing somebody who does. So we get what, you know, what the problems are, but how does this guy get into the country? Um, It just doesn't make sense that our authorities gave him a visa when he was, he was, qualified when he should have been excluded and how did the Brits not give us a heads up on who he is? So the whole thing is just, um, it's very difficult to understand. 
We're speaking with Andrew McCarthy of National Review. Uh, that's nationalreview.com, and he's on Twitter at Andrew C. McCarthy, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. And, Andy, you know, this, is, this was my question, you know, yesterday, is how did we let this guy into the, into the country? Then I read some of the reporting today. Some of it's coming from uh, the New York Post, which has its own sources in the U.K. It's uh, the Daily Sun. And apparently, I mean, it really does look like this was more or less a, a, a problem across the pond with our partners in, in the UK. And one aspect of this, and this is what, what I really wanted to get to you about this, is this visa waiver program that we put in place. We've got agreements with 40 other countries uh, on who's... Uh, on whom we rely for proper counterterrorism operations. And so we have relaxed uh, visas for entries, you know, it, it going both directions bilaterally uh, with these different yeah. countries. Uh, this tends to make it look like maybe it's just a little too lax and maybe there's not quite enough um, attention being paid here. Uh, have we had these problems with the visa waiver program in, in, in the past? And is this something that Congress really needs to be looking at in terms of tightening it up on our side? Yeah, Ed, I think it's a much bigger problem than that, unfortunately, because this particular guy, I think the problem is, is, is twofold. One is this particular guy did not qualify for the visa waiver program because even if you have a minor arrest for anything that's, uh, you know, short of uh, driving under the influence, if nobody gets uh, seriously hurt, if you've been arrested, you're basically not uh, eligible for the visa waiver program. You have to go into the other pot, which is go through the regular visa process. So even though we're dealing with friendly countries in the visa waiver program, that doesn't mean everybody gets that kind of treatment there are you know you have to satisfy some minimal conditions and if you don't you you have to apply for a visa the regular way so it does I, it's not clear to me that this guy got a visa through the special visa waiver program uh and in some ways that's almost more troubling because if he went into the regular visa pot you would think that they would have done a a, a more vigorous investigation of him and all these red flags would have turned up so it's not it's not at all clear what kind of visa he got, like what kind of process he was in, and why they failed to detect the red flags. And what I'm concerned about is what's going on on our side of the Atlantic, which is when President Trump first came into office, he intensified vetting and screening in connection with aliens who wanted to come into the United States, particularly um, he was trying to, to – intensify it with respect to people who were coming from hotbeds of jihadist ideology. And that was very controversial at the time, but I also thought it was very necessary. It wasn't talking about screening every Muslim. We're talking about, you know, people who are coming from places that are uh, threatening to the United States. Uh, and that was something that he prioritized. It was a big deal. He ran on it and he acted on it as soon as he got in. On his first or second day in office, Biden countermanded that, and especially given the lax counterterrorism record of the Obama-Biden administration, where they did things like uh, purge from our military, law enforcement, and intelligence agencies instruction on jihadist ideology in their 
uh, reinvention of counterterrorism into something they call countering violent extremism, which they call violent extremism because you're not allowed to say terrorism. I mean, that's right. how insane it is. Um, you have to wonder if Biden's first act coming in or among his first acts is to counterman that. How seriously are we taking the obligation to vet people before they come in? I mean, it seems to me like the signal is, set, is sent that we're back to the Obama-Biden protocols, which we should all remember for those eight years didn't work out so well. It's a good point. And again, we're speaking with a- a- Andy McCarthy. Um, this is this is clearly what we're going to be looking at. Is that an FBI function, though? Just to, just to wrap the because I do want to spend at least a couple of minutes on the train issue. And, and I, I don't, yeah. I'm mindful of time. But is that an FBI issue? It's partially an FBI issue. It's partially the Department of Homeland Security. And it's partially how well our entire intelligence community, which is this uh, 17 agency alphabet soup, that interfaces with foreign intelligence services. It's how well all that coordination works. So the FBI has an important piece of it, but they're you know they're one player among many. It's a it's a good point to keep in mind. Let's let's turn our attention to the um, to the um, story about the trains because I think everybody looked at this and we're we're just absolutely shocked at the report that train thefts have become a thing again, right? I mean, this is some, this. it feels like something out of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, right, that around the late 19th century. Uh, and yet, uh, yeah. train robberies are up by 356%, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of focus on this issue, as you were mentioning at the, at the top of the hour, uh, from, from local law enforcement, or at least local prosecutors. Yeah, so, I mean, the, the images of this Ed, are just, Stunning. I mean, it's shocking to see this is like third world stuff. But what's happening is um, trains are being slowed down and stopped as they go through the main part of it. It's it's a bigger picture than this, but it's called the Alameda Corridor and particularly in the area uh, adjacent to Los Angeles. And, And just to set the stage for people, there are two big ports in that part of Southern California through which about 40% of all the shipping that comes into the United States goes through. Now, it doesn't all go by rail, but a goodly portion of it goes by rail. So this is something that affects not just Los Angeles. This is a national and, in some ways, an international issue. And what's happening is they're getting about 90 containers per day are being robbed. And they stop the train. They rifle through the containers. They go through thousands and thousands of packages. They take what they think is valuable, and the, and the rest is strewn along the rail lines. And if you look at these photographs, it looks like a third-world country, the, the uh, garbage that's strewn along the Union Pacific Rail routes uh, in California. It's just shocking to look at the, uh, at the photographs. But, you know, it's stopping everything that you can think of, including, by the way, you know, at-home COVID testing kits and that right. sort of stuff. So we're at a time where we have high inflation. We're at a time where we have uh, supply chain issues, empty shelves throughout the country, rising prices. And we have this situation in Southern California where there's a real material problem with getting stuff shipped. It's being interrupted and stolen by the millions. 
So why isn't the FBI on this? I mean, this is clearly at least interstate commerce. I mean, this is I, I, certainly the Los Angeles County prosecutors should be on it, along with the other counties that are in that Alameda corridor, too. There's there's multiple counties where this is involved. I'm not sure exactly where the um, where the heists are taking place. But I mean, this is a it's also uh, if you read through the descriptions of this, this is an organized crime ring. I, I, I don't yeah. it's not necessarily well, mafia crime one. ring, but but it's organized. Yeah, more than one. I would say it's, uh, you know, the, something of this scale Ed, is probably not being carried out by one group. Right. Um, but there are certainly, you know, there are conspiracies of, of all kinds of different sizes. A big problem is the local law enforcement, especially Gascon, the, uh, the, uh, the district attorney in Los Angeles who won't prosecute people. So, if you commit grand larceny in his jurisdiction, it gets plugged down to simple trespass. And the cops, if they bother to arrest you at all, which is, you know, they're not doing a whole lot of arresting because it's a useless act. But it's like we used to say in the 70s in New York, you know, the bad guys are back on the street before the cops are done with the paperwork. Here they're back at the tracks um, and we see what's happening. So that's the local problem. As far as the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office is and you're right, it's more than one, but I think Los Angeles, the Central District of California, is the main one, and the FBI's Los Angeles field office. It's hard to interpret a negative. You know, we don't see anything happening, and we all know that investigations take time and there's investigative secrecy, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't want to say for a certainty that there's nothing going on because maybe they're investigating this and tomorrow we'll pick up the paper and there'll be a huge uh, dragnet. But right. there's no indication that that's true. And I looked at the websites of the FBI and the relevant U.S. attorney's offices where they are very quick to give you all the press releases that they've issued in all the cases that they think are important and trying to draw attention to. And there's not a word about this. Yeah, I mean, this is there's not a word about enhanced security, which you would think would also be uh, at least in part a federal interest. Along those rail lines, um, you know, maybe not necessarily the FBI uh, per se, but th th we don't get any word on that. We got about uh, 30 seconds left. I'll let you respond to that. And all of this stuff, this is the reason you have federal law enforcement is interstate and international commerce. I mean, it's really the basis, the basis of having federal law enforcement power. So this is the paradigm offense. There's a slew of relevant criminal statutes in the federal penal code. And they've got more than enough ability to take action. They just need to do it. And and it's just a matter of will in this particular case. Uh, Andy McCarthy, he's at nationalreview.com. He's also the author of Ball of Confusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Uh, follow him on, on Twitter, at Andrew C. McCarthy. Coming up next, Monsignor James Shea, and we'll talk about the life and dignity issues. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew. We'll be right back. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester.
Welcome back. It's 29 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew today. And by the way, Friday is the March for Life, and Relevant Radio's annual Fast for Life is coming up on Friday, and that's hashtag Fast for Life. So you can sign up for at hashtag Fast, uh, fast for Life, and you can go to uh, RelevantRadio.com slash fast. Uh, to tell us how you plan to pray and sacrifice for the unborn this year at relevantradio.com slash fast. A um, couple of people are, um, you know, we've already got, well, we got well over 1,600, at least as, as far as this morning, we've had well over 1,600 entries. I'm sure we've got more now. Um, uh, Marlene from Ontario, Canada says, a fasting of no meat and dessert. Oh, dessert. That, that would be tough for me. Dessert would be tough for me. But praying the rosary and a memorari every hour, and uh, she is so grateful to be part of such a blessed event. So be sure. Uh, and by the way, if you sign up, you get an, uh, a free bonus ebook uh, download. It's called The Choice is Love. The Choice is Love. And it has answers to questions like if a woman is pregnant and decides to have an abortion, shouldn't that be her right since it's her body? If the fetus is so small it can't survive apart from the mother, is it really a human being at this point? So if you want to have... Uh, not, I mean, we as Catholics, we know the answers to these questions, but it, it helps to have that sort of intellectual preparation to defend the dignity uh, of life and, and the sacramental nature of life. So uh, you can get that free ebook. Uh, the, the choice is love. Just sign up at relevantradio.com slash fast. And I'll, I'll be reminding um, listeners of this every hour. So um, lots of great stuff there. Relevantradio.com slash fast. And uh, joining us to talk a little bit more about the uh, about life and dignity is our friend Monsignor James, uh, James Shea. He's the president of the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota at umary.edu or cometomary.com. Either way, it takes you to the, to the right place. Uh, Monsignor uh, Shea, welcome to the show. Ed, it's always great to be on with you. How have you been? I have been well. Thank you very much. I'm blessed to be here right now. How about yourself? I'm doing really well. We've got uh, sunny weather. It's a little bit cold in North Dakota, but it's January. Well, I know that they're going to they're, they're going to declare this a moment for the drinking game in the production booth, but it's actually a pretty nice day here in Texas where I live now. So um, there's, mm. they, 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 they tease me that I like to try to work in a Texas mansion now every time I'm on the air. So uh, <laughs> so thank you. For, thank you very much for leading me right into that, Monsignor Shea. It was, it was, it was you brilliant. Got it. Yeah, don't mess with Texas. That's what they say. <laughs> Uh, now we were just talking about life and dignity, and of course, this is uh, yes. the, the the March for Life is on Friday, and right. this is uh, this is a week in which uh, University of Mary is actually focusing on life and dignity, and and all the different aspects of this. We can talk a little bit about what's going on with the schedule of that. I also want to focus on what that means. How what does it mean that? Uh, each human life has its own dignity. Where does that come from, and how do we express that? Yeah, so, you know, the March for Life is really important for us here at the University of Mary. We deeply, deeply believe in the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death, and we want to instill those values deeply, deeply into our students. And we're blessed here, Ed. We're blessed because we have so many thousands of students who are very deeply engaged in the cause for life, who are courageous for life, who are filled with joy and for hope and with hope for the future. And so back in 2017, we led the March for Life in Washington, D.C. And um, even before then, we were taking large groups down. But that year, we took, I think, 10 buses of our students 
down to Washington, D.C. to lead the March for Life. And so each year since then, we've been taking many, many buses of students down to the March for Life. Now, last year, the National March for Life was canceled uh, because of various things that were happening in Washington, D.C. and the pandemic and all of those things. So there was a small group of pro-life leaders. I was one of them, about 150 of us, who did meet in Washington, D.C. and who walked the path of the March for Life to represent the whole pro-life movement. So I was honored and, and really privileged to be part of that small group. But here in North Dakota, we launched the North Dakota March for Life in coordination with the Diocese of Bismarck. And so this year, we're going to have both the North Dakota March for Life and the National March for Life in our buses leave for Washington, D.C. this very night. And so tonight, they're going to get on the road, they'll drive through the night, and they'll drive all the way. It's, it's, it's more than, I think it's about a 30-hour drive one way uh, to get from Bismarck, North Dakota, to Washington, D.C. in a bus. You can get there a little, a little quicker if you're in a car, but on those big buses, you've got to make the stops and all of those things. So I'm really proud of our students for that. And one of the things that we decided to do a couple of years ago, Ed, is we said, you know, what's important is that our students really have a deep sense of the sanctity of the life of the of, of the unborn child because that's the foundation. The right to life is the foundation for all of our other rights. It's the foundational uh, element that, which allows us to, to think and talk about the life and dignity of the human person. And so it's important that they fight for life and the, the, the question of abortion, and not just making abortion illegal, but making it unthinkable is a fundamental thing that we all have to strive for. In addition to that, there are other issues that we want to sensitize our students to, and we want to make sure that they think about them and speak about them in coordination with the life and dignity of the human person, the unborn human person. So, for instance, when our... um, When our students are in Washington, D.C. at the March for Life, we always make sure that they make a visit to the Holocaust Museum, the National Holocaust Museum, which reminds them of what happens when the life and dignity of the human person is not upheld in law and what happens when a regime or when, the, when, when medicine turns against the human person instead of upholding the dignity of the human person. So that's one thing that happens. And then here on the main campus, we have, culminating in the March for Life, but all through this week, we have events um, which hold up the life and dignity of the human person. So, for instance, on Sunday, we had our midwinter powwow which is a gathering, you know, of course, there are lots of Native Americans here in yes. North Dakota. And, uh, and in fact, the, the, the prairie bluff upon which the University of Mary stands was, uh, was the site of a very large battle between, uh, between American Army forces and uh, Indian forces. Uh, Sitting Bull fought here on this, on this bluff, and it was called the Bluff where they dig for paint. That was the name of the bluff on which the University of Mary stands. And so we had a, a, an extraordinary turnout. Um, and we've been, you know, we had our midwinter powwow every year during all the 1980s and 1990s. And then there was like a 20-year hiatus. And we brought it back a couple of years ago. And it's wonderful. Plus, so many of our students come from places like, you know, Connecticut or from um, uh, places like, um, I don't know, uh, Virginia or whatever. Uh, And so the Plains Indian culture is something which is very new for them. And so it's wonderful for them to be able to see all of the singing and the dancing and the celebration. So that was on Sunday. And we had um, a mass in honor 
of black elk. And black elk was a catechism on the Pine Ridge. He was a catechist on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota, and his cause is up for for canonization. He was a Native American medicine man who turned into a Catholic catechist and who was a teacher of the faith, and his cause is up for canonization. And so we were excited to be able to commemorate him. Yesterday, we had the commemoration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and we had a prayer service in the morning at which Bishop Perry from the Archdiocese of Chicago spoke. He's leading the cause for the canonization of Augustus Tolton. Father Augustus Tolton was a runaway slave who became the first documented African-American priest. His cause also is up for canonization. And then tomorrow we have uh, Life and Dignity Day, right in the middle of Life and Dignity Week. We cancel classes and we have a day-long discussion about all kinds of different topics that touch upon the life and dignity of the human person. J.D. Flynn from Pillar Catholic will be here in the morning speaking about the rights of the disabled. And he has uh, people in his family, I think some of his children, who have disabilities. And he wants to speak to our students about how beautiful the disabled are, especially in what Pope Francis calls a throwaway culture. And then we'll have a panel discussion uh, on the rights of the disabled. Yep. I just want to stop you there for just a moment. Uh, I mean, we're speaking sure, of course. No, I, I'm sorry to go on and on. I'm no, so no, this is, this is great. No, this is great. But I, what, I, what I want to kind of tie all together here, and I want to get on to what, what's coming up next, too. Um, yes, but, of course. I mean, all of these things speak to life and dignity. They also speak to the dignity of diversity, right? And I know that some people yes. are going to roll their eyes when you say diversity, because diversity has really kind of become this, this sort of political catchword. It's become politicized it's become sort of commoditized really but there but mm-hmm. dignity we are all god's children that doesn't make us uh homogenous nor should we expect it to make it uh, uh make make us homogenous god's creation is incredibly diverse there's we should have every expectation that the human experience is also incredibly diverse but is di- but it has a innate dignity in that diversity that you should respect um, and but that you should also you know embrace and and um, and accommodate. I mean, those are the types of things I think that sometimes where politics intrudes, dignity recedes. And and I think this is one of those areas. And and so when you're talking about Martin Luther King Day, when you're talking about the, the powwow thing, I, I just I really wanted to kind of pick your brain about the about yeah. that about that tension that that we see and how really artificial it should be. Well, so as Catholics, we believe that our equality comes because we are all created in the image and likeness of God. So the fact that we all have inherent dignity arises out of that. Now, when politics uh, inserts itself, it stops talking, and we've seen this in politics here recently, Ed, it stops talking about equality and it starts talking about equity, which is a different concept. And it's a concept, equity is a concept in which the levers of government, so to speak, are responsible to make sure that there's sort of a level playing field for all people and that if there are, if there are inequities, that those need to be corrected by government. And inequity isn't a good thing, um, absolutely not. But there are different ways in which we approach um, these 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 sort of thorny questions. And so I think that uh, I think that we do see the intrusion sometimes of the state um, in which true diversity isn't really honored. 
And I think, for instance, here's an example. You know, here at the University of Mary, we try and be a faithful, vibrant Catholic university. A lot of people would like us just to be a beige version of the of the public university next door, and they think that right. that's diversity. It's not. <laughs> diversity is us being us and them being them. You know what I mean? And so, but mutual respect um, for and so, mutual respect for both institutions, um, and Senior Shea. That's right, and, and and for different values and ideas and those kinds of things. But um, but yeah, I think that I think that we uh, we have we use diversity as an incantation oftentimes, and we hold up as our highest value tolerance. Now, what's the problem with that is what what do you think when I say to you, Ed? I tolerate you. <laughs> is, that, is that really the that, best I can do? That you're putting is, up is with that, me. And, that, that's, that's what a lot of my friends do, Monsignor Shea, and actually I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> well, that's, but yes, that's I get not what we're called to. It's not what we're called to by the gospel. We're called to love others, to treasure them, to, to, to uh, sanctify and to guard and protect their dignity. And so... And, and to fight for them, especially if they're vulnerable and don't have a voice of their own or if they're marginalized or if they need help. And, and that's what we're called to as Christians. And, and so our faith holds the answer uh, to these questions, and it's a, it's a much more elegant and lasting solution uh, than any sort of government program ever could be. And that's why we're so eager to impress that upon our students during this, life of, uh, this week of uh, protection of the life and dignity of the human person. Indeed, and you can find out more about that at umary.edu. We're going to talk more about that with uh, Monsignor Shea. In fact, we're going to continue on right now. Uh, we've got a, a couple of minutes before the break, um, and I, when I interrupted you, <laughs> you were just about ready mm, to talk yeah, yeah. a little bit about uh, about uh, uh, consciousness raising about disabilities and the, the dignity yes. of people with disabilities. Uh, you know, my wife is uh, is is blind, so I mean, something that's sort of near and dear to my heart as well uh, is mm. is is. Making sure that people understand and respect her dignity um, uh, in that, and uh, it's something that comes up. And um, and, and JD Flynn, I think, would be a, it would be a great um, um, uh, vessel for that uh, uh, in your in your presentation. Yeah, he has a couple of children, I think, with Down syndrome, and it's going to be an easy talk for him, I think, because he's going to get up and tell our students how much he loves his kids, which any dad can do, <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. But also how important it is uh, for us to have others in our lives who have special needs and to love them in a very particular way. Um, it's especially important for us at a place like the University of Murray where we have these very big health sciences programs. That's often the place the health sciences are the places where healing and access um, are meant to sort of be championed. But oftentimes when medicine goes wrong, it's trying to obliterate uh, human weakness. Um, and, and that, well, that's what the, the Nazis tried to do in Nazi Germany. You know what right. I mean? With the uh, medical experimentations and the death camps and those kinds of things. And so it's important that, uh, that the disabled uh, be be treasured because they're a special gift from God to all of us. And they remind us of human vulnerability and weakness and of the permanent mandate that we have to care for each other. Mother Teresa said that if we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to each other, that we belong to each other. I've always held that quote so close to my heart because I think it's important for us to remember that. 
And so, you know, we have disabled uh, students here on our campus. We have disabled employees as well. And we thought that in the midst of this life, this week uh, for the life and dignity of the human person, to spend the morning talking about the life and dignity of those who are disabled and who live with disabilities uh, is really important. And it's, it's a deeply Catholic thing to do. It's a very deeply Catholic thing to do, and I think with especially in light of the, um, the the March for Life coming up at the end of the week. We're going to talk oh, more yeah. about that with Monsignor James Shea of the University of Mary, umary.edu, or cometomary.com. I'm Ed Morrissey, filling in for Drew Mariani. We'll be right back. Hey, today we'd like to thank Julia, who's listening in Kentucky, for donating her Ford. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. It's 49 minutes past the hour. I'm Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com, filling in for Drew today, taking your calls at 888-914-9149. Before we get back to our conversation with Monsignor James Shea of the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota, I do want to ask our listeners uh, in the upcoming chaplet, which is coming up next, uh, please pray for the McHale family of Phoenix. The, um, The father was hit by a car. This is Edward McHale, was hit by a car on Sunday night crossing the street. He was the brother-in-law to Brian Birch, the president of CatholicVote.org. Edward leaves behind his wife, Christine, and their five young children. Uh, Really tragic. And just ask that, uh, along with all the other prayers that people are going to be bringing to the chaplet this afternoon, uh, to include uh, the the McHale family and and, um, prayers for the repose of Edward McHale's soul. Uh, I know that will be a great comfort to the family. Monsignor James Shea, University of Mary uh, in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, umary.edu. We're talking about life and dignity and the upcoming uh, March for Life. And you were mentioning, we were just talking about, uh, Monsignor Shea, about the the issue of of abortion in terms of disabled. You know, there's, a, there's a lot of this going on uh, where, where you have people who are doing amniocentesis to try to determine whether or not there's yep. birth defects present when this is not a terribly accurate method of making those determinations. There's a lot of false positives that come out of those. And uh, you have countries that are saying, hey, we've wiped out you know, Down syndrome when they're not doing any such thing because it's not something you wipe out. Uh, all they're doing is yep. just aborting the babies that have this. Uh, it really is ta- speaks to a utilitarian view of human life that your week of life and dignity at the University of Mary really is designed to counter, is to remind us that life's value isn't in its utility, it's in life itself. Yeah, we, we feel it's it's a responsibility for us Ed, to inoculate our students from this mindset, which is so pervasive in our culture. Again, Pope Francis uses the phrase, a throwaway, a throwaway culture, in which human life and dignity isn't treasured, isn't valued for what it really is. You know, I think I did see the the report in the New York Times. I think many, many people saw it and was shocked to read about um, how inaccurate these tests are, 
how how many tens of thousands of people take these inner utero tests uh, to determine if there are birth defects, and oftentimes make a decision to end or terminate their pregnancy to uh, to have an abortion as a result of these tests. And they were saying in the New York Times, which is not the National Catholic Register, it's the New York Times, they were saying uh, that these tests are often very inaccurate um, and aren't giving uh, the full story. But one way or the other, you, you also mentioned uh, this really pernicious thing where countries like Iceland are saying that they've wiped out Down syndrome, that they've cured Down syndrome uh, somehow, as though it's um, as though it's uh, a disease that needs to be cured or something like that. Like a virus, you're right? Or what's happening? Like right, and what's happening instead is that uh, is that these screenings uh, are being done uh, so often, and then life and death decisions are made based upon them. And of course, it's a heartbreak for any of us who know and treasure people with Down syndrome in our own lives. We know. Uh, that that they express an authenticity of the human person, a a reality, a love, a joy, a a simplicity of life, an acceptance of the other, uh, which all of us would do well to imitate. In other words, uh, the the people uh, with Down syndrome that that I've met in my life are people who have virtues, uh, who have human characteristics and traits, uh, which are deeply beautiful, and who call uh, their families and their friends, the, their relations, into a great heroism of love, um, and to just be with them. That's all that they want. Um, and so that um, that's something that we really need to reflect upon as a culture. And I wanted our students to have a really robust conversation about it here so that they could prepare their life with a generosity and an openness so that when they meet those who are disabled, uh, they're able truly to love them and to see how much they can receive from them, can receive from them. And that's really important. Well, yeah, I think it's important. And again, it, 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 it calls us to remember that none of us are perfect, right? I mean, all of us are broken in, in some way or another. I am, everybody I know is. And um, and you can bet that everybody that y'all know <laughs> is as well. I mean, th- we all need to be helping each other. We all need to be lifting each other up. And it... It might be a it might be a physical handi- handicap. It could be an emotional handicap. It could be all sorts of different reasons. You know, some sort of um, uh, very hardwired predilection towards sinful behavior that people are struggling with. That's why we're here is to help each mm-hmm. other get to salvation. And regardless of what our what, what, what our um, uh, what our shortcomings are. Yeah, it goes back to Mother Teresa that we forget that we belong to each other. You know, I have a younger brother who's a priest. Um, so I'm the oldest of eight children. I'm a priest, and uh, number five, brother number five, <laughs> is a priest too. And he um, he one time spent a week at a home where the disabled live together, and there are some pretty severe disabilities there. Uh, but he said that he was deeply moved by the experience because as he wa- as he met people, as he talked to them, he realized um, that there was just a great openness. And that what the disabled want to know when they meet you, and they'll sometimes just ask it out front uh, and and uh, and directly, do you love me? Do you love me? That's their question. And right. my brother reflected, I heard this when he preached a homily here at the University of Mary to our students. He said, this is a question that actually all of us are asking all the time of those in our lives, but we're too chicken. 
<laughs> we're too cowardly <laughs> to ask it directly. And so we ask it in all kinds of strange, passive-aggressive ways uh, that are filled with fear. And, um, and so this is one of the primary things that we can learn from the disabled, the gift of how to give and to receive love, which is the reason that we're here. You know, when we talk about the purpose of human life, human life is about learning how, this is why God gives us the gift of life, so that we can learn how to give and to receive love, even though we have a fallen nature, uh, which is prone toward profound selfishness, we can be drawn out of ourselves, and all of that is a scrimmage or a preparation for heaven, which is the giving and receiving of love par excellence, infinity. <laughs> you know, and right. so that's what we're prepared for here. And if we if we block those things in our life, if we if we slam the door on everybody who's different from us, if we slam the door on the unborn child who might inconvenience our life, if we slam the door on the disabled person who might draw us into sacrifice and self-sacrificing love, which will be uncomfortable but deeply healing for us, then we're missing all of the opportunities that God's placing in our lives to become holy, to learn how to love, to give it, and to receive it. And that's something we don't want to miss. And I don't want our students to miss it. That's why we have a whole week devoted to it. So one more one more thing on this schedule for tomorrow is um, a talk on human sexuality and rights and gender issues yeah. in light of Catholic social teaching. And we've only got a couple of minutes. So, you know, this is obviously this is probably the one yeah. thing that's probably the most complicated and we've left two minutes for it. So that's my fault, uh, Monsignor Shea. But, no, but no, 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 no. I, I... I can say very simply that we didn't want to neglect these topics either. We know that right. these are hot-button hot issues of the day. They cause tremendous confusion, especially among the young. The Catholic Church has a deep treasury of phenomenal teaching about human sexuality and about the, the meaning of, of sex and the meaning of uh, being male and female. Pope St. John Paul II has his astonishing, breathtaking theology of the body. And so we do have sessions tomorrow on gender and on human sexuality. And we thought that that was really, really important because it's an area in which lots of young people, especially those who have big hearts, can oftentimes get confused about the truth because truth and love go together. And, and, and this, is, I, this is probably one of the most confusing um, uh, topics in this particular yeah. era just because there, there's so many pressures, there's so many um, temptations, and it's... It's very. This is, I think, one of the one of the places where, as individuals, we can fall into the utilitarian trap, right? Um, about about right. your body being Absolutely. having just a utilitarian value, that sort of thing. That's right. In in the in the uh, that these things exist only for the seeking of pleasure and not for the giving and receiving of love and the building up of the human family. And that's how we get to abortion, by the way. In other words, oftentimes the misuse of human sexuality is is uh, there's a straight line between that and the slaughter of abortion. And so we want to make sure that our students aren't simply thinking in a one-track way, but that they're seeing the whole breath, that if, if we let a chink in the armor of the life and dignity of the human person turn into a pockmark, turn into a piercing, and, and if we let the darkness in at any point, then it contaminates our whole vision of life and dignity. And so it's important from the very beginning, the, the, uh, 
the solemn beauty of human sexuality all the way to the treasuring of human life. It's important that the students are thinking about that whole thing. The whole Monsignor James Shea, we got to end it there. I could talk for another hour with you. It's great talking with you. Umary.edu, go there. I'm Ed Morrissey filling in for Drew. We'll be right back. <laughs>